As we approach the centenary of the operation to bring home the unknown warrior on behalf of the nation at the end of the First World War, new research has unearthed a fascinating story of a man from Roden Street in South Belfast who played a key role in the operation only to be written out of the story. This month's episode is an interview with the man behind the new discovery and how it has become the subject of a brand new book due to be published very soon and I'm extremely privileged to have had access to it. Folks, these discoveries are hot off the press. It's advisable to be wearing oven gloves and sunglasses when listening to this episode. Anyway, Among the Kings is the title of the book. It's by Mark Scott. His previous book, The Man Who Shot the Great War, told the story of Belfast soldier and photographer George Hackney and was written following research he conducted for Double Band Films, who produced a documentary of the same name for BBC Northern Ireland. This is episode 6, Among the Kings. Okay, Mark, welcome to the Historical Belfast podcast. Um, I'm just going to get straight into the questions, really. I think the starting point of the story is your relative, Jimmy Scott, his fascinating notebook, which he carried throughout the war. Uh, do you want to begin by briefly just uh, setting the context, really, of the notebook uh, and how it came to be that you would set about researching it? Yeah, um, the notebook... Um it was returned along with his effects after he was killed in January 1917. Uh, prior to that, he, he obtained it around about February 1916. And from that point on, he started to make notes of men who were killed in action in the battalion and I think in his company. He was a sergeant in B Company. So he, he noted a list of names, basically, of those who were killed. The notebook then changes after the 1st of July. Um, From that point, he continues to to write a list of names, but their surnames and addresses, um, typically like Mrs. Campbell, William Street Newtonards, things like that. And some of these names have ticks at them and some have crosses. So I then discovered that he had obtained leave um, after the 1st of July, he was promoted to company sergeant major. He survived the battle and got a promotion. He then got some leave. And it looks like he has then visited the people in the second list and uh, in a sort of welfare capacity after the battle. But basically the names, I researched each of them and tried to track down as best I could the families uh, connected to those names today and uh, varying degrees of success with that. And basically the stories of those names and what I found out about them, they basically make up practically the first half of the book, um, Among the Kings. One of the stories which kind of initially struck me uh, was that of Thompson Gould, uh, but it also reminded me of a similar story at East Belfast, um, a lady had got in touch with me quite a few years ago, actually, regarding a man called Bob, Bobby Gillespie. 
um, from East Belfast. Bobby was only 18 when he enlisted with the Royal Engineers, part of the 36th Ulster Division. He was wounded at the Battle of the Somme, but he survives the war and comes home kind of with a broken body and a broken mind. He's lost some fingers on one hand and lost part of an arm on another hand, and he slips into depression and, and alcoholism as well, I think. But he carried a notebook through the war as well, and it listed names of comrades and addresses which were in and around East Belfast. But to cut a very long story short, Bobby met a, a terrible demise in 1937 when he took his own life at a house in Cable Street. But interestingly, one of the one of the names and one of the addresses in his uh, in his notebook uh, was 12 Cable Street, just off the Newton Arge Road, which no longer exists. I think Cable Close is there now in its place, just where the murals would be at the bottom of the Newton Arge Road. But when reading the story of Thompson Gould and and, and his sort of uh, terrible story, it, it reminded me of the Bobby Gillespie story. Uh, could you just say something about Thompson Gould? And, you know, he left for Canada and, and I noticed that you had written that even until very recently, his family still sort of held this kind of resentment towards him. It's such a really tragic tale. If you would just tell us about Thompson. Yes, Thompson, um, he was a rifleman in the battalion. He, he was involved in a number of horrific incidents. The first uh, was on the night of the 5th and 6th of May, 1916, when he was uh, at the wrong end of a, a German bombardment on the, the front line trenches at Thiepval, where the 14th Royal Irish Rifles were holding. The trench that Thompson was in collapsed, killing quite a few men along with him. He wasn't killed, but his, he was buried basically up to his neck and trapped and had to remain in that position for, for the entire bombardment um, for a couple of hours, really, until he could get uh, dug out and rescued. So that, that was a, the first horrific incident that he was involved in. He spent some time away from the battalion ill after that. He returned again, and shortly after returning, he was involved in a bombardment, uh, this time up near Messine, where the battalion were operating after the 1st of July. Again, he spent time um, sick at a, a hospital, returned to the battalion after that, some months later, and was again subjected to another bombardment where he was standing in a trench and the two guys uh, beside him were killed in an explosion. And again, he um, survived but was wounded. At that point, he was actually, I, I discovered from the military records that he was sent, sent home, basically, he was medical died of the army with shell shock. So I tracked down one of his relatives um, today and they informed me that immediately after the war, he had got married and moved to Canada. And it seems, again, similar to the, the chap you were talking about, that he, he had taken to drink and had suffered from depression. And at this stage, he had a couple of children. And after a few years living in Canada, at one point, he literally just walked out of the house, uh, apparently to get a pack of cigarettes and was never seen again. And the family believed that he had taken his life. But the, the impact of that has resonated right down through the family to the present day because he had left um, part of the family orphaned, you know, his, his, his children. Um, I think one of them had to be uh, put into care and... You know, this had repercussions on down through the years. But it's looking back and you see the, 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 his military history, 
I was able to let the family know that there was a reason, if you like, for his behavior. And, you know, they accepted that it shone a new light on things. You know, they didn't realize he had been through all these horrific experiences, um, things that you could never dream of. And, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of was cold comfort, if you like, because obviously what is done is done. But um, they understood at that point that there was a reason for that. Yeah. And probably what we would term today is PTSD. And it's amazing, really. I think stories like that and, and of, of Bobby's and many others, kind of proof, if ever it was needed, that, that the war and aspects of the war continuing to affect families and family units many, many years after, after the fact. Yeah. Now, Jimmy, sort of, he, he's obviously in the 14th Royal Irish Rifles. They play uh, a prominent role in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Um, and, he, and he emerges from that uh, relatively unscathed. But he never really updates the notebook during the Battle of the Somme. Um, however, in October 1916, he's granted this period of home leave, which then prompts a re-engagement with the notebook. Uh, can you tell us about what happens then whenever he's granted this period of, of leave? It, it, I think that's pretty interesting. Yes, the, the, the notebook is, in effect, two lists. Um, there's a list of those killed, and then, as, as you point out, there's this second list that he makes um, in about uh, the time of October um, after the Battle of the Somme during his, his leave. The, the names change in that they, they aren't names of, of the men who were killed. They're surnames and uh, you know, there's usually a, a prefix like Mrs. For instance, Mrs. Campbell, William Street, Newton Ards. And um, they, they stretch, the, they're in around Belfast and greater Belfast, out to Lisburn. Um, Newtonards, Bangor. Um, there's quite a few names listed, and some have a tick beside them, and some have a little cross, like a little X. And it appears my interpretation of that is that during his period of home leave, he has taken it upon himself um, to carry out a sort of a welfare um, welfare exercise and visiting families with messages, possibly letters. Uh, mementos who knows you know that, that's unfortunately that's the thing about it we don't know what, what these messages or or what this information could have been because they weren't all men who were killed um there was you know the, a wide range of of you know so, some of them were still alive at this point some of them were, were prisoners of war uh some were killed um but it, nevertheless he was visiting the families yeah now, his, his luck kind of runs out then in January 1917 when the, the company headquarters dugout, which he was in, takes a direct hit during a, a German artillery bombardment. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what happened in the incident uh, which finally claimed his life? Yes, the, there are a number of accounts of his death. He, he gets a mention in the, the Battalion War Diary, which is quite rare. Uh, for a, 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 another rank, if you like, you know, not an officer to, to be named. And there are a number of uh, diaries of, or diaries of soldiers held in the Royal Ulster Rifles Museum in Belfast. And he features in uh, a number of, of, of those diaries. He also features in the diary of George Hackney. And there's some letters that are held at Prony, which were written to George Hackney, who served in the battalion. And in those letters, he specifically mentioned you know, that, that he was killed. 
and it was basically on the 22nd of January 1917. The 14th Battalion had just taken over a position from the Enniskillen Fusiliers. And during the changeover time, um, it was always uh, peak time, if you like, for a, a, an attack because there would be double the amount of men um, milling about the, the British lines. As one battalion was leaving, the other one was taking over their positions. So um, from the German point of view, um, it was a target-rich environment, if you like. So there was a, a bombardment um, unleashed slightly to the right of the 14th uh, battalion positions and a shell struck the headquarters dugout just close to Messine, um, within 100 yards of where the Peace Tower is today, actually. Uh, there's various, there's a family story, and, and the, we'll, we'll probably touch on this later, but um, I find, and I don't know about you, Jason, but in doing this research, some of the family myths that you hear, even though they can be quite far-fetched, there's usually something to it. And, you know, when you, when you dig into it, you usually find that the family myth, you know, is, it may have been embellished over the years or whatever, but, the, you know, there's, there's something there. And with Jimmy Scott's death, it was the fact that he had, um, the story in the family was that he'd gone into the dugout to light his pipe. So I, I learned that before I'd carried out any research about him. And it was only when I found a couple of photographs of him, that he's actually, he can be seen with his pipe or with smoking a pipe. So, okay. You know, you know, it, it puts a bit more credence to the story. So it seems that he's taken over the dugout. He's gone in probably just to start to make himself at home because he's going to be there for seven or eight days and uh, lights up the pipe um, so that it's, he's not doing it out in the open and drawing attention. And it was the dugout was literally hit, direct hit with an artillery shell and he was killed outright and was buried about three quarters of a mile away at La Pludouve Cemetery. And so ironically then, as, as Jimmy Scott's kind of life comes to an end in the book, the kind of real gist of the story then begins. And I mean, the next question isn't really a question. I'm, I'm, just, going, I'm just going to get you, give you a line here and then get your initial response to it, because I know from reading it that this line was almost, it's one of those ones that when you're doing historical research from time to time, something becomes almost a game changer and takes your research off in a completely different direction than you had ever anticipated. And for me, it was this line in the book, quote unquote, oh, and after the war, my father did that thing with the unknown warrior. Tell us about where that line yeah. came from and then what that meant for you subsequently. Yes, well, that line, um, as I'd explained, I'd, I'd, I'd begun tracking down the, the descendants of, of the, the soldiers in the book. And there was a name that I couldn't decipher for months and months. And eventually I just happened to look at it in a particular way. And it was Fitz 172 Roden Street. And when, he, when I checked the records, um, there were three brothers uh, called Fitzsimon. And they all served in the battalion. Two were corporals and one was an officer. Um, the two corporals actually, they retain an S on their, the end of their name, uh, Fitzsimons, and the officer had dropped his, uh, so he was Fitzsimon. Um, he was called Ernest. One of the, the two brothers uh, was killed in action on the 1st of July, and the second received the military medal. 
Uh, Ernest was intelligence officer at that time. So I tracked down Ernest's son. Um, he's two sons, one lives in Dublin and one in Canada. And I tracked down the chap in Canada, uh, Dr. John Fitzsimon. He eventually uh, came to Belfast and met me in the Royal Ulster Rifles Museum. Um, prior to that, when we were arranging that and talking on the phone, I you know, explained what I was doing and he said, yes, you know, my father, yes, he served in the 14th Royal Irish Rifles. He was an intelligence officer. He, you know, he did this, he did that. And he just made the comment, just as you've said, oh yeah, and after the war, he did that thing with the unknown warrior. So when I heard that, I was thinking, okay, the unknown warrior. So I went and researched it. And you see names like um, the chaplain, Railton, uh, General Wyatt, General McDonough, Roger Kipling, the King, you know, all these people are involved in the Unknown Warrior story, uh, but no Fitzsimon. So I thought, right, this, this gentleman's mistaken. Um, and to be honest, Jason, I did take it with more than a pinch of salt. That changed, however, when I met Dr. Fitzsimon, because he brought with him a box of documents and photographs. And when I started to examine the material, I realized that beyond doubt, um, his father was involved um, in the operation to recover the body of the unknown warrior from France. And one of those documents, if I recall correctly, was a photograph of Fitz rubbing shoulders with Marshal Foch and uh, General Wyatt uh, and a couple of others uh, and I thought it was absolutely incredible that this guy fits from 172 Roden Street uh, could be could be pictured there what what was his role in that operation I mean do do we know for sure what his role was we, we do I suppose in his own words I mean this was 1920 November 1920 as we're, we're almost at the centenary of, of that event now and at that time I discovered that Ernest Fitzsimon was attached to the Department of Graves Registration and Inquiry based at St. Paul. So things started to, to fit, if you like. St. Paul was where the operation of the Unknown Warrior was, was ran from um, and where the selection of the body took place. So, you know, we have him there. We have him at the right place at the right time. And at that stage, he was a major. He was a major rank. Um, and the photographs, yes, they're, they're quite a, there's a series of photographs that show him with Marshal Foch and um, the, main, the main players, if you like, in the operation, General McDonough and General Wyatt. And there was one, again, um, when we talk about the family myth, Dr. John Fitzsimon told me, he said, yes, my father Fitz, he just referred to him as Fitz. He says Fitz had arranged that um, a gun carriage uh, be brought by the French army uh, to collect the body at the citadel at Boulogne. Uh, and then it was to be taken uh, from there to the quayside where HMS Verdun was waiting um, to carry the body back to England. And John told me that his father had been waiting at the quayside. He wasn't at the citadel at Boulogne. He had made his way to the quayside to attend the, the ceremony. And the body of the unknown warrior arrived in a general service wagon. And Fitz 
apparently went off in a total rage because this was completely against his directions. So I discovered a, there was a photograph in the collection. Um, it was quite tattered. There's a copy of it in the Imperial War Museum collection and it shows and it shows the body of the unknown warrior at the quayside alongside HMS Verdun. Marshal Foch is in the foreground of the photograph. And sure enough, the body is in a general service wagon. Now I've, I've looked, I've seen a number of photographs of the unknown warrior at this stage. And I hadn't thought twice about the general service wagon, to be honest. Um, in the, on the English side, the body is carried on a gun carriage. Um, but at the French side, uh, it wasn't. And I, I suppose, it, you know, the modern equivalent would be picking it up in a Land Rover or a four-ton truck or, you, you know. So this had a, an annoyed fits. But when I got the high-resolution version of this photograph from the Imperial War Museum, I studied it in depth and I could see, I could identify Fitz standing at the quayside and he, he isn't standing um, looking towards Marshal Foch, listening to what he's saying or, or whatever. He's actually standing side on, his arm is extended and it, it actually looks as if he's given off mm -hmm. um, to a French officer who's standing beside him. So again, when you, when you hear the family myth and when you see the photograph, and you know the myth is explained in the photograph. You know, I, I thought that was unbelievable. So yes, things like this started to fall into place and, and started to 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 cement the fact that yes, um, at that point I believed that Fitz was involved in the unknown warrior operation without doubt. And yet, the name Fitz doesn't really turn up in any of the official accounts, if you want to call them that. So, for example, when General Wyatt. Uh, writes what is or what you have described as you know the widely accepted official account which was published in 1939 I think in the Daily Telegraph I mean yeah. there's, there's obviously no mention of, of Fitz which, which kind of leads me to the next question that I think it's mildly interesting I think that that here's a man who may well have you know led an operation to repatriate an anonymous serviceman um, but then is on, almost inexplicably anonymized himself. I mean, why do you think that he, that Fitz almost becomes written out of the story in the end? I discovered that there were a number of people actually written out of the story. I think really what it boils down to is that it, this was um, a secret operation. It was a covert military operation. Unfortunately, at, at some point, it had to become overt and very public. And that would have caused problems and it, indeed the, it, it almost did cause problems because it, that arouses the, the interest of the press and the public and you know, they want to know the whole story but they can't. I started to examine the roles of um, other officers that were involved in the operation, lesser rank officers, even lower rank than Fitz. He was a major at the time but there was a, a group photograph in amongst the collection that John Fitzsimon had brought from Canada. And I went about trying to identify as many people as I could in that photograph. And then, if you like, finding out what they had to say. Did they leave any records or any diaries or any written accounts? And it seemed that, yes, some of them did. Um, but it became apparent that each individual involved only knew their little role. Um, 
and nothing before or after or nothing beyond that. So, um, it, you know, there, there are a number of people identified, like Cedric Hardwick, who was an actor, went on to become Sir Cedric Hardwick. And he actually wrote memoirs in 1936. And in it, he describes his role and he describes that he was specifically instructed to put out misinformation to the press um, about activities relating to the unknown warrior. So you can see that they were trying to cover things up as well. So yeah, you know, it, it seemed that, that Fitz, he had his own role, which I believe was planning, planning the, the work on the ground in France. Um, the general probably devolved that role to Fitz. Um, and again, as long as he was satisfied that the job was done, he didn't need to know the whole story either. You know, so it's, it's, it's a, a classic um, story of each individual knowing their own key part and nothing else. Yeah. So um, as the years went on, then Fitz, he returned to, to Belfast. He took up a position in the, the Royal Austrian Constabulary, as it was then, um, just after partition. And he remained there for about five or six years. He then went to live in Dublin and became a barrister. He was actually the first barrister to practice in both Northern Ireland or Ulster and in the Republic at that time. Um, he, he practiced in, in both jurisdictions. I, I find it really interesting when in the book, first of all, and then you've, you've just mentioned it there again about this misinformation then that was being put out. And I think that that's, that's to your credit um, Mark as well as, as a writer you know I've had the benefit of reading this book over the last couple of weeks uh, and what you were dealing with I think was complex with so many different layers to it and I think it's all credit to yourself actually that you've been able to set that out in a way which is clear then for the reader to understand um, and I would encourage them people whenever they get the opportunity you know to buy the book um, and read it and fill in all the gaps um, that we have that we have sort of set out here because we're not giving you all the information today we don't want you to have all the answers and all the secrets you're going to have to buy the book to find out what happened um, well, I'm glad you said that, Jason, the fact that <laughs> you were able to follow all the different um, <laughs> leads because, yeah, it, it, it is quite a complex uh, story and there's a lot of, I've tried to corroborate everything and back up everything that I've said and uh, with either photographs or original documents and um, they, they were all out there, but it's just that I suppose it hadn't all been looked at in context. Yeah. And that kind of leads me on to the next question as, as we kind of head towards the end. I'm asking this really from an historian's point of view because you made a really interesting point at the end, I felt, which is that as you were writing this and as you were researching it, you became acutely aware that, that this was all going to be intensely scrutinized by historians and, and anoraks from across the UK and, and hopefully beyond <laughs> because that will increase your sales. Uh, but that you actually find this to be a troubling experience, um, you know, quite literally putting your head above the parapet, pardon the pun. I'm just wanting to know, where are you with that now? Where are you now with that sort of troubling feeling, yeah. given that it's, you know, two or three weeks away from, from publication? How do you feel about that situation yeah. now? I'm still troubled. I'm glad you used the word anorak, not me. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, um, well, it's it's like I said, I've I think I've done... My due diligence, if you like, I've, I've um, and there, there are other people who have helped me with this, and that they're mentioned in the book as well, um, in uncovering the documents and and the various pieces of information. 
but yes, I didn't set out. I mean, this this began with Jimmy Scott's little notebook, and the important thing really is that okay, we're coming up to the centenary of the Unknown Warrior uh, operation uh, this November, um, but I didn't set out to write a book about the Unknown Warrior. That's the strange thing. I was following the information uh, that the names in Jimmy's notebook, um, where they led me, basically. And, you know, that journey has taken me uh, to the halls of Westminster Abbey, to, you know, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, to these, these, these national organisations. And in the end, I'm dealing with pretty big history. And that wasn't where I intended to be. Um, so yes, I, I am troubled. I am uh, bracing myself, if you like, <laughs> uh, batting down the hatches. I'm like Jimmy Scott in that bunker, you know. And uh, yeah, uh, but uh, as I said, I think I've, I've, I've done the work. I've done a pretty professional job on this. And, um, you know, uh, th there are a number of, of revelations. Um, you, you haven't really, you haven't touched on them. Um, we can leave that to, to the reader, but they are big revelations. And um, I think I'm justified in making them. And if someone were to come and say, that's wrong because, and show me other information that I haven't found, well, well and good. That, you know, even from that point of view, I wouldn't class that as a failure. It would be a success because my work has then um, drawn out some other information that may be there. So yeah, I mean it's 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 history. We're dealing with something that happened a hundred years ago. Uh, I suppose now we we all expect the information to be to, to be at the other side of the keyboard, and uh, sometimes it just isn't because that that wasn't how the information was was made in the first place. Yeah. But what what I take from this, uh, it's something that that impacts on me it's the fact that jimmy scott's little notebook it's a tiny thing paper pages and a little pencil that's held in a little sheath down a little leather sheath down the side of it and if he hadn't scribbled those names i wouldn't be here today talking to you and what i've discovered would still be undiscovered so you know you can take something from that and also to put that in, in the modern perspective you know, so much now today, I mean, we're, we're, this is a Zoom meeting we're having, a Zoom conversation. Everything's on phones, on iPhones, Android phones, whatever. And in a hundred years time, will we be able to fire up those phones and power them up and read the information that's there? You know, and compare that against a very simple little notebook with notes written in a pencil. You know, it's, that's, that impacts on me, you know, um, out of all of this, you know, because those little notes led me to where I am now. Yeah. I also think it's a great, it's just occurred to me, you know, it's a great advert for, you know, doing your family history and doing your family genealogy, because, you know, if there's anybody out there who's listening to this and they're maybe, you know, they're not sure about what to do or, or where to go, you know, do you get down to the public records office? Do you get down to the Linen Hall library? Do you try and get online and even start with a basic search 
if you're not sure, ask questions and, and do try and make a start with this because who knows where you might end up. You know, you might end up in Westminster Abbey bumping into Mark Scott along the way, you know. <laughs> you may find those those other documents that I was telling you about. <laughs> you may be the person to say, no, Mark, you're wrong, you know, which, which, which you know, I, I wouldn't be disappointed with, you know, I'd, uh, I would I would want to see that information, you know, and I'd be interested in it, of course, but yeah, you know, the, that's, that's how it led to me. The, having said that, there's, this journey started for me in 2012, so there's, there's eight years work chipping away, you know, I've been doing other things obviously in between, but yeah, it's been hanging there for, for the last eight years. And it's about to become the subject of a bit of a drama, is that right? It is, yes. I'm very excited about, about this. Um, Belfast actor and playwright Dan Gordon, uh, he became aware of the, the, the story uh, probably around about just before Christmas time, um, before COVID and all that. And uh, he became fascinated by it. And when I'd completed the book, I sent him a copy. I, I made a, a first draft around about April. I sent him a copy of that and he's read into it and he has become totally engrossed in it to the extent that he has written the play. And again, we don't know at this stage uh, where it can be performed or how we can have it performed and seen, but we're, we're going to try very hard because he has made it sort of almost COVID compliant, if you like, um, in that there's just one actor and the actor is going to play the role of Fitz of Ernest. Major Ernest Fitzsimon, and uh, basically we're going to talk through, if you like, Fitz's story and introduce the other characters without other actors. So from that point of view, it's just going to be one actor on the stage, one costume, so there's no backstage people involved, nothing like that. So hopefully we can, we can get it out there. But yeah, Dan has finished writing it, and he's going to do a, a first read-through um, just in the next few days. And hopefully um, by November, it should be out there as well for, for everyone to see in some format or location um, that's yet to be formulated. Excellent. Now, I know that you've had many obstacles along the way, and you're, I know you're anticipating some more obstacles. So I just want to extend my congratulations to you, Mark, for getting this you know, um, to a point of almost completion it's about to be published in uh, three weeks is that right 30th of 30th october, october uh, 30th october yeah thank thank you uh jason for the congratulations there yeah the uh 30th october is the latest date i've heard from the publisher uh, maybe a day or two before that and um hopefully the uh, covid um restrictions won't impact on that um in any case, the book should be available online. Uh, it should be available on Amazon, and I'm going to put up um, "Among the Kings," which is the title. I'm, I'm going to um, kick off an "Among the Kings" Facebook page, and there'll be links there where they can be obtained directly from me. So, again, hopefully, we'll try by whatever means. Um, it's unlikely that there'll be a book signing and book launch that you know that you would usually see um, because you just can't get that. You can't have people together like that anymore, you know, unfortunately, in the times we're living in. But yeah, um, we'll get the book out. And if, if people find themselves locked down in the run up to Christmas, it'll make a good read. And if they're not locked down in the run up to Christmas, it'll make a good present. <laughs> Great stuff, Mark. Well, thanks very much for joining us anyway. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for returning to listen to the Historical Belfast podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Do check out the previous five episodes, share them with your friends and your family and like-minded individuals. We are also now on Instagram, so please give the page a follow. Send in any feedback, questions or suggestions that you might have for the podcast. Until next time, stay safe and look after one another.